Father, I know that prayer is what releases heaven on earth. Our church needs more prayer because we need more deliverance, more healing, more salvations, more freedom. Wouldn't you agree? Do you need a little more? You know, maybe yourself or somebody you know that is suffering and you want to see him free. Well, the disciples came to Jesus one day and said, how come we couldn't cast the demon out of this little boy? He has epilepsy is what they called it. It was a spirit of infirmity. Jesus said, because of your unbelief. They had already cast out demons. They had already raised the dead. They had already healed the sick, but they could not get this one to come out. And Jesus said, this one doesn't come out but by prayer. You see, Jesus was prayed up and he came on the scene and bam. He didn't say this won't come out because I'm the son of God. I'm the only one that can get it out. He said, you guys need to pray more because that releases more of heaven on earth. And so then you see the disciples doing greater works in the book of Acts. Well, now it's our turn. And so if we want more, see, spiritual problems are not solved by natural solutions. Spiritual problems are solved with spiritual answers and prayer is the answer. And we march on our knees. The army of God marches on their knees. So I said, God, how do we get more of your presence in our church? And he said, call the church to come together at 930 on Sunday mornings. And I said, that's a really bad idea. Half of them don't even come at 10 (laughs) o'clock. And I said, give me confirmation. An hour later, a pastor friend of mine called me and said, John, you free this morning for coffee? I said, I actually am. We got together and he said, man, we need more prayer in our church. I said, yeah. He said, I asked the Lord and we started coming together for prayer at 930 at our church before. So I said, are you serious? So we started out well and about 30 were coming consistently uh, tonight at 930 to pre-service prayer. And, uh, and my, my, you can ask the people that set up the church. I'm like a dog on a, a pit bull on a bone. man. I'm like, get done setting up at 930 because God wants to come. And he's called us to pray. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to get our crew to be done at 930. I get here 815 and I'm setting up so that we can be done at 930. I'm calling you family of God for us to obey God. And if, if you don't come, I love you. And you'll still get a free lunch and you can stay here forever. But I'm calling you. In the name of the Lord, to come at 9.30 with your kids. Let them run around and scream. We don't care. We're just crying out to God for God to come and do supernatural stuff in here and raise the water level of the Holy Spirit's activity. And I tell you what, you'll be changed in the process. And when church starts at 10 o'clock, you're going to be the loudest one in here because you're going to be so filled with the Spirit and presence of God. And that's how the church gets heated up. So I'm not going to read the scripture because I just took up all the airtime on that announcement. And I think that was sufficient. Amen? Amen. Uh, eat and greet today. You get a free lunch right after church. We're going right out those doors, straight out the back. There's picnic tables, and uh, we have a new uh, family. In the- <laughs> he and Shelly. Oh, okay. I didn't. Nobody told me that. It's in the bulletin. All right. Okay. Well, since you're so uh, radical about it, get up here. Come on. Yeah, that's what you get. Oh, and by the way, we had a, we had a, I heard there was an awesome youth event last night. And you guys had a, I heard you guys had a blast. The youth ministry is rocking, man. If you've got teenagers, middle school, high school, take them to Thursday night youth ministry. That you find important that need to be said. Okay, so I want to say I'm so grateful for Mark and Shelly. Mark is one of the best teachers you'll ever hear. Shelly is a phenomenal teacher. And Mark tried to retire, and God gave him new assignments that are taking him places that he never wanted to go. Uh, He wants to be on a sailboat up in Elliott Bay, but instead he's down in Guadalajara leading a revival, and he gets to bless us here at the gathering place. So, Mark, welcome. Bring the word, brother. Thank you. Just want to say, uh, with respect to Ron Farnsworth and the cookie ministry, 
Ron's a neighbor of mine. I've known him a long, long time. And there'll be often times when I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking about killing someone. And Ron comes over and gives me a cookie. And it's just like all that hatred is gone. So Shelley's asked him to bake several thousand cookies just for our house. The good thing about getting old, it's the only good thing about getting old, you stop caring what people think of you. So you'll just get up in public and make a complete fool of yourself. And there's nothing more fulfilling than making a fool of yourself in public. So, one more opportunity. We are in a series about identity. How do we define ourselves? Who are we really? What is the source of our identity? And to be honest, for most of us, and this includes Christians too, for most of us, our identity is in what we do. We define ourselves by our productivity. You go to a party, the first question you ask a stranger is, what is your name? The second question you ask is, what do you do? And depending upon their answer, you'll either spend the next half an hour talking to them or you'll walk away. Come on, be, be real about this. We evaluate people by what they do. We evaluate ourselves by what we do. Our identity is in what we do. We are performance-driven. Was that God's intention? Is that the way he wants us to define ourselves and see ourselves? You see, we're created by God, which means the greatest question we can ask is, who am I with God? The deepest, most profound question is, who am I with God? Who is God to me? If we're creatures, we've been created by him. Therefore, his definition of our identity is the only one that really matters. And until we find that, we're wandering. We're just wandering in the dark. What is God's plan for our identity? Who are we in his eyes? You know, we define ourselves, oftentimes there's lots of Christians that define themselves as sinners. We're, in sinner, we're sinners in need of a savior. But was that God's original plan? That we would see ourselves as sinners? When God first made us, were we sinners? In the garden? Adam and Eve? No. They were not made for sin. They were made for something else. The first three chapters of Genesis are some of the most important chapters in the Bible because what we see there is God's perfect plan for mankind before sin. Before anything messed it up, we get to look and see what God intended our identity to be. And it always starts with God. How many is our God? Three. He's one and three, and he's three and one. Our God is a relationship. 
Our God doesn't value relationship like it would be nice to have good relationships. We're all coming together at church, so we should be nice to one another. It's nice to be nice, so let's have nice relationships. It makes things nice. But that's... God doesn't value relationship. God is a relationship. Isn't that amazing? His quintessential nature boiled down to the simplest understanding of him, God is a relationship. He doesn't value it. He is a relationship. Relationship is everything to God. Absolutely everything. So, and and by the way, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but this makes sense because God is love. God defines himself as love. Well, for there to be love, there has to be more than one. Are you with me? Nobody gets up in the morning full of love and shouts out to the world, I'm so full of love, I love nothing at all. It makes no sense. To be love, there has to be more than one. So if God is going to be love, what's the minimum number that he can be? Two. And what human institution does he use as an analogy for us to understand his nature? Marriage. Two. Mowage? Have we been wa- have we have we been watching Monty Python late at night? Holy Mowage. <laughs> Friendship, John. Friendship. Another human institution that reflects the nature of God. Marriage. And what's interesting about marriage is when we get married. She gives me all of her love, and I give her all of my love. And it's like those halls of mirrors. Have you ever stepped into one of those halls of mirrors when there's a mirror on each side of you? And you look down, and all you see is images of yourself receding into infinity? Marriage is like that. If we're doing it really well, I'm giving her all my love, and she's giving me all her love, and that love is just going back and forth between us, and it just just goes on and on and on. But our God didn't choose to be two. He chose to be three. What human institution is that? It's a family. Our God is a family. And a family can always have one more kid at the table. God starts as a triangle and then he adds another and he's a square and then he adds another and he's like a pentagram and then he adds another and another and another and another and pretty soon he's a he's a circle of all these points that are included in his love and the love just goes around and around and around and around our God is a family our God is a relationship he is a relationship of love and in the kingdom of God this relational aspect of God This love in love, I think of the Trinity as love in love with love. And the love just keeps going from one to the other, to one to the other, to one to the other. They're always deferring to one another. God's always saying, listen to my son. The Holy Spirit's saying, look at Jesus. Jesus saying, you can't wait for me to leave. It's really good that I'm leaving because the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. God, God is humble because he is always deferring the attention to another. It's a very, very amazing thing. 
In the kingdom of God, a loving relationship comes ahead of every other value. And the book of Genesis in the first three chapters makes this crystal clear, but it takes a little examining. So let's look more closely at a particular verse, which I used to read for years and years, and this is, this is shame on me, but I would read this and think I understood it. God said to Adam and Eve, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So my interpretation of that was that the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, was sin. He's, I always thought he's saying something like, well, you know, you shouldn't sin. When you sin, you're going to die, and that's a bad thing. So the knowledge of good and evil is somehow sin. Have any of you thought that? Has that crossed anybody's mind other than mine? Like it was a bad thing. You don't want to do this bad thing. You're going to acquire the knowledge of good and evil. That's a bad thing. That's sin. I thought he was talking about sin. I thought that if Adam and Eve acquired the knowledge of good and evil, it's just another way of saying that they sinned. But then I read this verse, and it really, really rocked my world. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And I realized the knowledge of good and evil cannot be a bad thing because it is an attribute of God. Are you with me? God who is perfect, God who is perfectly good, understood the difference between good and evil. And knowing that difference did not make him any less good or tarnish his perfect holiness in any way. So here's God saying, I don't want you to acquire the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to know the difference between good and evil. In fact, that's the one thing in the garden I don't want you to have. You can have absolutely everything else, but I don't want you to acquire this. But it's a good thing. It's an attribute of mine. But I don't want you having this awareness. And it's the only thing, the only thing, that he didn't want them to have. Do you, do you see the tension? Do you, do you get it? Like, what's going on here? What does he have in mind? And what is the knowledge of good and evil anyway? I got to pondering that. What is the knowledge of good and evil? And I got to, I was um, thinking back to a philosophy course in university. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. The knowledge of good and evil is ethics. It's the study of what is right and wrong behavior, particularly human behavior. It is to have a moral nature. It's that course in university. It's ethics. It is this. Having the knowledge of good and evil is about examining your life 
moment by moment and deciding what is right and wrong behavior. Make sense? Are you getting it? It is the self-awareness of sin. It is the self-awareness of right and wrong as it applies to your behavior. It's about having a moral nature. It's about having a conscience. It's about looking and watching and examining your life in terms of what is right and wrong behavior. To have the knowledge of good and evil is to be a moral being continually conscious of right and wrong behavior. And it is a characteristic of God. He is aware of himself in that way. He's aware of right and wrong. But this is the one thing, although it's an attribute of God and therefore it is a good thing, it's the one thing he doesn't want you to have. This is, this is really, really puzzling. Because I grew up in the Christian church believing that the heart of my faith was being good. Anybody identify with that? That to be a Christian is to be good? That to be a Christian is to pay attention to your behavior all the time? To do what is good and avoid what is bad? Spending your time figuring out what is good and only doing that and avoiding everything that is bad. I was taught as a child I must always watch my behavior and become always concerned with right and wrong. Is this the definition of a Christian? That's the definition of a moralist. It's not the definition of a Christian. When you live in a world of moral awareness, when you live in a moral world, where is your gaze? Yourself. When you're focusing on right and wrong behavior, your attention is on yourself and your behavior. Well, let's just examine that for a minute. Let's say you decide that's how I'm going to live my Christian life. I'm going to pay attention to everything that I do. Always determining when I can, and it's difficult sometimes, what's right and what's wrong in what I'm doing. Let's say you get really good at it. Really good at paying attention to yourself. Figuring it all out. What are the consequences of how you view yourself? As you're viewing yourself through the lens of your behavior. There's only two possible consequences for what happens from that perspective. Because of that perspective. Can you think of what they are? Well, yeah, the first one's pride. Imagine that you're pretty good at, at, at the moral thing. That um, you're pretty discerning and uh, you pay attention a lot and you really want to achieve. You want to make the cut. You want to get the great rewards in heaven. 
So you're just working your butt off constantly, paying attention to yourself to get it right. And guess what? You're one of those rare people that gets it right most of the time. What happens to you? How do you feel about yourself? Yeah. Hey, look. I mean, I'm not Jesus, but I'm close. I'm not Jesus, but compared to these people around me, these losers at the Gathering Place Church, <laughs> compared to these losers, I'm really, I'm achieving something here. Look at me. You need to be more like me. Yeah, yeah. We have a, we have a biblical character that embodies this. They are the Pharisees. The self-righteous Pharisees. That's the first consequence for those of us that really think we're doing it well. That's where we end up. Self-righteousness. Pharisees. But let's talk about the others. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about me. Here is the curse of having a well developed and refined conscience. And I'm not making a joke of this. It's a curse. Because the better your conscience, the more refined your moral sense, the more it becomes clear to you that you are failing. And Jesus makes it so hard. I mean, give me a break, Lord. I haven't killed anybody this week, but you've thought about it. I haven't lust, I mean, I haven't, I haven't touched another woman, but, but you've thought about it. And that's just as bad. Oh, man. Are you telling me that it isn't just what I do? I'm also responsible for what I think? Yes. Well, then there's no hope for me. Because I know the inside of my mind, moment by moment every day. And I don't see someone whose thoughts are succeeding at righteousness. Hello? Is this echoing with anybody here? See, for most of us, this moral nature we're so busy pursuing condemns us. Just condemns us. And the harder we try to be good, the more painful our failures when we're not. Because we keep raising our standards and trying to make it. And then our failures are all the more horrible because we've raised the standard. And pretty soon, we begin to loathe ourselves. We become judges against our own selves. And we become discouraged. And we start to realize, I can't win at this. I can't win at this. No matter how hard I try, I keep on failing. And what we do, because we want so badly to belong, we put up a good front of success. We say the right things to one another. We go through the motions. But our faith doesn't seem alive. It's 
it's become like work, just work. And it discourages us. And we just want to quit. But we know we can't. So we just keep doing more and trying harder. And we end up judging ourselves. Some of us even end up hating ourselves. I told you about that moment of that AA group of AA leaders in Guadalajara, 40, about 40 of them getting together and the leader of the 40 leaders invited me to come and speak about God, about Jesus. He'd become a Christian two years earlier and now he's leading a group of 40 AA leaders representing seven, 800 people in Guadalajara and he said, come and speak and I decided to talk about shame. I started talking about shame in our lives and man, everybody in the room, they understand that. They're there because they understand that. But it's hopeless because it doesn't go away. And then I talked about the man and his wife standing innocent before God, naked and unashamed, completely and thoroughly known, absolutely transparent, everything inside showing. And yet being able to stand there in the presence of God, accepted and loved. And they were innocent and they felt no shame. And as I was talking about that, this 30-year-old girl in the front row put her hand up and she just shouted out, I hate myself, and I hate everybody else, and I wish I was dead. I said, can I pray for you? And she said, yeah, and she came forward, and I prayed for her, and she was set free of the spirit of hatred, and she accepted Jesus as her Savior. The Holy Spirit touched her. For the first time in her life, she didn't hate herself anymore. By the end of the meeting, over half the leaders had become Christians. It was absolutely astounding. See, self-hate, self-criticism, self-judgment, that's where we live when we're moral beings for most of us because we're honest about who we are. We're not pretending we're good. We know we're not. But look, What do these two outcomes have in common? Self-righteousness or self-hate? What do they have in common? Self. You see, God knows something. When we define our identity in terms of ourselves and our behavior, we can only become self-righteous or self-loathing. Because our attention and our focus is always on ourselves. And where is the power to, be, to change and be transformed? Where does it come from? From gazing at ourselves? It comes from being in a relationship with the Father. It comes from our gaze going from the horizontal where we're looking at ourselves and looking at others and looking up at Him and saying, I'm not defined by what I think of myself. I'm not even defined by my behavior. I'm defined by a relationship of love. And that relationship of love saves me from self-focus. 
And when I stare at perfect beauty and perfect love and perfect holiness, I become transformed by the gaze of what I am beholding. Beholding brings becoming. If you are, pause. I know what some of you are thinking. Your, your, your little, your, your, your theological tilt button in light is just going off like crazy. And you get where I'm going, and it scares you right now. You're thinking, he's actually trying to tell me my life's not about being good. He's actually trying to tell me that I'm not supposed to be worried about right and wrong. If I did and lived the way this crazy guy is describing, I could do whatever I want. And there would be no restraining influences on my behavior. Somebody asked me at the gym this week what my message was about. And I said, it's about defining ourselves not by the right and wrong things that we do, but rather defining ourselves by the relationship of love with a perfect love with our Father. And he, he, he jumped right to the obvious conclusion. He said, then I can go do whatever I want and I can go to a strip club. And I said, if you feel comfortable taking God there. (laughs) Well, hey, if we're caught up in a relationship with Him, and we're conscious of that relationship with Him, and we're living out of that relationship with Him, and our gaze is on Him, that He's with us everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. There's just things I'm not comfortable doing anymore because he's with me. It's not that I don't have to. It's not that there's a rule that says I I can't. It's that I don't want to because he's with me. Because I'm with him. Because my life is becoming defined by him. Not by me. And not by somebody else's rules. Or rituals. Or religion. I'm free of all that but I'm in bondage to a perfect love. I'm overcome by a perfect love. I'm in relationship with the source where all goodness comes from. Why would I want to go do something wrong? I don't even want to do those things anymore. They're not even entertaining anymore. They're nothing compared to Him. They're nothing. They don't mean a thing. His goodness defines me. I'm not defined by my successes. And I'm not defined by my failures. They don't matter. The successes don't matter and the failures don't matter. All that matters is staying in touch with Him. Where's your gaze? What are you looking at to define yourself? Yourself? Good luck. Him, you have all the transforming power in the universe working within you. 
You don't have to worry about your behavior. Just keep yourself fixed on him. And your behavior will take care of itself. And if that's not freedom, people, I don't know what freedom is. The law, focus on behavior, is a rude and cruel taskmaster. It always wants more, and it's never enough. And his love is always enough and provides everything we need. And you can be secure in it because you're free of self-focus. And that focus on him transforms us from glory to glory as we gaze at him. And that's what Paul said and it's in the Bible and that's how our ethics work. Somebody once asked St. Augustine, could you please sum up Christian ethics in one sentence? Do you know, any of you know what he said? Love God and do what you want. That's what he said. The greatest theologian other than Paul in church history nails it in one sentence. Love God and do what you like. You see, when you're in relationship with God, what you like changes. Not because you're trying to, but because you're in relationship with God. Holiness is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it is a transformation of the heart that changes us from the inside out. And it does so as our attention is on God and not on ourselves. Just, just, just pause and think for a minute. Just think for a minute. What would it feel like in my life if I wasn't always worried about my behavior? What would it feel like if all I had to do was live a relationship of love with him? Joy, freedom, innocence, unselfconsciousness, spontaneity, childlike, free, 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 free of myself. The biggest bondage we have is to ourselves. And to be able to let that go and be caught up in somebody else, man, that's freedom. Just wondering right now how God wants to apply this message. So let's just take a minute and I'm going to listen and see what he says. I see an image of you on a treadmill. And every 
so often it goes a little higher in inclination. And it goes a little faster. But you're determined to succeed. Determined to do it right. But it just gets a little higher. And it gets a little quicker. It was easy walk in the beginning, but now it's running and panting and tiring. And you can't get off. And Jesus walks up to you and he says, Get off the treadmill. And you say, no, I can't. What will happen to me if I get off the treadmill? And he says, well, then you'll be with me. He says, get off the treadmill. Let go. Let go of yourself. Let go of your self-focus. And look at me. Now step off the treadmill. Just step off the treadmill. And what does he say? What does he say to you when you step off the treadmill? And how does it feel?
just uh, was the message, relationship, not religion. That's your life word. Doesn't matter what the topic is, that's what you're going to preach. <laughs> and what I know about Mark is he has been extremely successful and he has been an extreme failure. He has experienced serious high and a serious low and he found Jesus was his place of peace which is total freedom the apostle Paul said I know how to be abased and I know how to abound I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and so can you you can do all things you can steward success and you can endure failure through Christ who is strengthening you. It's all about Him. Let's all stand and let's sing this together again, church. Great message today, Mark. Thank you so much. That's medicine to the soul. I'm going to sing this chorus. You are good, good.
a phenomenal story in the Old Testament where this uh, army was coming against God's people and they were going to get crushed. And God said, just go send the singers out, which is really stupid. Send the singers out in the front line. And the singers go out there and that's what they sang. You are good and your mercy endures forever. God sent angels and wiped out the enemy. Satan tries to tell us God's not good and he's going to steal all your joy and your fun. But the truth is God is good. And when we call his name, he answers the phone. And you got a divine connection. The other thing God has given is the body of Christ. We are to be the secondary source of God's goodness in our lives is our love for one another, the triangle. We're in that triangle. So that's one of the reasons we do eat and greets is so that we can do more than just say hallelujah on the way in and hallelujah on the way out so we can actually have relationship and uh, we bribe you with free food. So in the connect groups, we want to make sure you're in a small group throughout the week. But uh, we're going to go eat now. So what you're going to do is you're just going to go out, go out the aisle. You're going to